Hey gang, well, we're really getting into it now. This is the second big heart debate. This is the heart Dworkin debate. And the second attack that we're going to study on Hart's idea that law can be described based on social facts alone, that there is this separation between law and morality. So this is Dworkin's challenge to positivism. And Dworkin's theory is really interesting. It it's, has elements that feel kind of like natural law, and it has a kind of descriptive understanding of judging that, that, that just feels right. And he's a beautiful writer. So there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And now this is not the only time that we're going to talk about Dworkin. Next week is all about the Hart-Dworkin debate, but through two other writers, as we'll see. Stay tuned for that. For now, let's just get through the outlines of Dworkin's kind of distinctive theory about what law is and how it's practiced. Now, he sets up two competitors, two rival theories that each explain how to distinguish things that are law from things that are not, how to distinguish between the guy ranting on the street corner telling you to do things or telling you what the rules are from the official system that you accept uh, that you think actually does describe the law. One of these theories he calls law is convention, and this really is identified with Hart's theory of law as a union of primary and secondary rules. Now, law is convention, as Dworkin describes it, identifies law from its prior sources, from, from the past, from history, historical sources, according to some kind of conventional rules. The other theory is law as pragmatism. And here we have unconstrained adjudication. Adjudication unconstrained by legislation or prior judgments that each resolution of a dispute, each application of the law is basically an opportunity to do what seems right in the moment. Now, Dworkin contrasts both of these with what he calls law's integrity, which calls for the interpretation of law as a coherent whole, as if it were written by, as he says, a single author, the community personified. The law should express, what he says, a coherent conception of justice and fairness. The core idea is that we should interpret the law we have to be excellent and to be coherent with respect to our kind of prevailing conceptions of justice and fairness. It's an interpretation for our legal now, for what's happening right now. So it's not about keeping faith with dusty old tomes. It's not about creating integrity between some distant past and now and our future. It's about horizontal integrity, as Dworkin describes it. It's about creating a regime where the law that we have right now is consistent with our moral principles and tells the best story of us as a people. As he contrasts his theory with these other two paradigms, he says that law's integrity deplores the mechanism of the older, quote, law is law view, as well as the cynicism of the newer, quote, realism. So Dworkin's challenge is to show us how doing law is an exercise which is constrained in a way, and therefore you might think has some legitimacy because it's not just an exercise of raw power by judges doing their wants. But it is also not constrained by particular words, particular texts, particular historical acts. There's both freedom to change and freedom to recognize our principles and freedom to disagree theoretically, and there is a kind of constraint. Okay, so let's see how he does this. There are basically five parts of this reading, or, or five big ideas that I want you to get out of it. The first is the chain novel metaphor, 
which introduces the kind of whole paradigm of law's integrity. Second is kind of what flows out of that and that he applies are the concepts of fit and justification and this myth of Hercules applying these tools. Third are the ideas of local priority and expanding the range. This is how we can actually implement fit and justification in adjudication. Fourth are objections arising out of a kind of skepticism of the whole enterprise, either of law or even morality more generally. And in particular, Dworkin's counterargument, which is sometimes called the semantic sting. At least it's a counterargument as to some kinds of skepticism. And lastly, and as a maybe a part of that, I also want to introduce you to the idea of principles versus rules, which is very important for Dworkin. Okay, first, the chain novel. And here, I mean, wow, right? This is a really striking description that, you know, maybe it's not the same for everybody, but for me really lands as a good description of what it feels like when you're thinking about new cases. It's a beautiful way of showing how human beings, when they're making decisions about things where there is some obligation of fidelity, can be constrained and unconstrained at the same time. Okay, I'm not going to go through the entire description here, and he gives a great example of A Christmas Carol, but the upshot is that you are the author of the latest chapter in a novel, and others have authored the chapters that came before, and the position you find yourself in writing that next chapter is, first of all, as an interpreter of what came before. You have to understand what came before, and you have to be thinking of a new chapter that will fit with the ones that came before. So that first dimension of fit is very important. But more than that, you have to have an interpretation of those chapters, a critical interpretation that can help you understand what would make a new chapter a good one or a bad one. So the idea is to try to figure out what next chapter best fits, of course, what came before, but also makes of the entire work the best that it can be. And so, you know, there's some rather obvious examples here where you can think of the next chapter in the A Christmas Story being something really outlandish involving, like, space aliens and stuff. So some stuff that obviously would not fit or with completely different characters. But I think you can see that if you stop at any particular point, what comes next, uh, there, there are many possible chapters that you could write next. A lot of them would be nonsense, but even if you constrain yourselves to ones that make sense, where the reader isn't jarred into something completely different, there could be several different possibilities. Dworkin's idea, though, is that from the point of view of the person writing the next chapter, there's kind of a right answer to that question. There is a best option for the next chapter. That's what it means to author something. Here Dworkin references a few different kinds of skepticism you might have about whether the author is really constrained in any meaningful way. We'll come back to these when we talk about law. But for now, I'll just highlight this one criticism, that maybe someone will accuse you of rewriting the real novel and not respecting the text. You know, I don't know, maybe J.K. Rowling has written the first three Harry Potter books and you write the fourth. And fans are outraged that you didn't adhere to the real meaning of Harry Potter. Here Dworkin says that this is a misunderstanding of how you could possibly do your job as the writer of that next book. You have to make an interpretation, and then you have to write according to that interpretation. And so he says, your disagreement is not that the critic thinks you should respect the text while you think you're free to ignore it. That's kind of what the critic alleges. He says, your disagreement is more interesting. You disagree about what respecting this text means. 
this for Dworkin is the essence of what he calls theoretical disagreement. Okay, before we get into that with respect to law, let's talk about this character, Hercules. So Hercules is a judge, and he sees the law like the author of the next chapter of the chain novel has complete access to all the chapters that went before. Hercules sees all of the law. He has a perfect ability to know what it is, to see where it fits together and where it doesn't, to see what principles are used and where. He has an ability with respect to any new case to evaluate it based on all the sources of law and principles within the community. So his job, then, is what? Well, Dworkin says that it's very much like the author of the chain novel. He has to find a resolution of that case that fits the legal landscape as it exists. And among those resolutions that fit, he should pick the resolution that makes of the law the best that it can be, the best possible story that it can tell about the community and its principles. The word here he uses is justification. He wants to choose a resolution that best fits the existing legal landscape and that justifies the law as a whole in terms of the community's principles of justice and fairness. Dworkin gives us a picture of Hercules in action deciding this case, McLaughlin, which he describes elsewhere in the book, but you don't have in the chapter that I assigned. Okay, here are the facts. On 19 October 1973, a friend came to the claimant's house to tell her of a serious accident involving her husband and three children two hours after it had occurred. He drove her to the hospital where she saw her daughter dead and her husband and two other children seriously injured, all still covered in oil and mud. She suffered serious nervous shock as a result and sued the defendant who was responsible for the accident. The question is whether she should be able to recover in tort for the emotional harm that she suffered seeing her family in this terrible, terrible way. Dworkin gives us on page 240 six possible principles that Hercules might settle upon to decide the case. Things like you can never recover for emotional damages, you can only recover if you were at the scene, you can only recover if the emotional harm were foreseeable, only if it's foreseeable and there's no massive liability, etc. So the exercise here is to find a principle that can explain the law the jurisdiction now has, which includes its prior cases. And going through that, Hercules finds the first principle is out, the second doesn't actually state a principle, etc. You can kind of agree or disagree and see what Dworkin has to say. But you do see Hercules going through this effort of explaining why he might impose a novel duty that it can't be that he's unconstrained in the way a legislature would be. As Dworkin puts it, judges must make their common law decisions on grounds of principle, not policy. They must deploy arguments why the parties actually had the, quote, novel legal rights and duties they enforce at the time the parties acted or at some other pertinent time in the past. One way you can do this is to expand the range, look at other cases outside of accidents and emotional harm. When do we give emotional damages in other kinds of cases? When do we award damages for economic injuries which do not involve physical harm? Maybe we have to look outside the narrow scope of this case to find the principles in law that are important, indeed that are critical to resolve this case. On page 249, Dworkin says this, Which story shows the community in a better light, all things considered from the standpoint of political morality? Hercules' answer will depend on his convictions about the two constituent virtues of political morality we have considered, justice and fairness. It will depend, that is, not only on his beliefs about which of these principles, and here Dworkin refers to the principles Hercules used to decide the case, not justice and fairness, 
which of these principles is superior as a matter of abstract justice, but also about which should be followed as a matter of political fairness in a community whose members have the moral convictions his fellow citizens have. All right, so we've got a really complex picture here of the job of a judge, of what it means to do the law. It's not as simple as referring to prior decisions or to looking at authoritative texts. It's about interpretation. It's an inherently interpretive exercise and interpretive of the political morality of your community. And in this sense, law and morality are bound together. Dworkin, as we'll see a little bit this time and a lot next week, doesn't just think that's the best way to conceive of what a judge does, but he asserts that's the only way of understanding how it is that we observe what we do in our legal system. Why do people radically disagree about what the law is? Okay, we'll come back to that because there's a lot more to say about it. But I want to finish up here with just a few objections that Dworkin canvasses. You might have these kinds of objections when you read this theory. First, maybe Hercules is substituting his own judgment for the actual law or the real law of emotional damages. In other words, there's this thing called the law of emotional damages. And here's Hercules doing this weird thing and coming out with his own idea of what the law should be. Now, Dworkin says that this could be an argument that Hercules has applied the right test, but has warped it, manipulated it, or misused it so that it's come out the wrong way. In other words, he chose a solution to the problem of emotional damages that didn't fit the existing legal landscape. Well, that's not very interesting to Dworkin because it's not an argument against the theory. More interesting, though, is the criticism that a test calling for Hercules to consult his personal convictions concerning fairness and justice is somehow illegitimate. Dworkin says that that itself is a political conviction that we should take prior judges' statements as authoritative or use some other method, that these are all political convictions. Why are those a better theory of justice and law? Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. You may have a lot of thoughts about it, but I will will bracket them. Here's another objection, though. Let's suppose that we even take for granted that there is some objective morality of the community. There's some objective political morality. Hercules is a fraud, this objection goes, because... What he's really saying when he resolves these cases is not that the law requires the result at which he's arrived, but rather that it should require that result. In other words, he's consulting moral convictions, which may, let's concede for now, may even be right, to say that the law should be X rather than Y. There should be emotional damages for these reasons rather than no emotional damages for these other reasons. But that's a different statement than saying that the law requires that result. Now, here we have to consider Dworkin's argument about the so-called semantic sting. So if the suggestion is that what Hercules is doing cannot be called law, then those critics fall into the trap, Dworkin says, of saying that there is a meaning of the word law, or what counts as law, with which everyone has to agree. But in fact, theoretical disagreement is all over the place. People simply don't agree about the grounds of law, about what constitutes law. And that's because law is an interpretive concept. It's a word that we use to describe the interpretive exercise that we engage in, according to Dworkin, in order to align our community with the principles that we hold. 
And so there just can't be a fixed, uncontroversial definition of what counts as law and what cannot, because that's a matter of interpretive judgment, not semantic definition. To put it differently, to say what law is, we have to go through the exercise that Hercules went through. We know that because that's what we observe judges actually doing. We observe them disagreeing fundamentally about what is the law and what's not. Law just is that kind of enterprise. It is not identical with the definition of words. So when you say law is this thing, these things are the law, and that everybody has to agree with that, we just don't observe that in reality. Okay, we'll come back to the semantic sting in discussion. I want to close, though, with a third objection that Dworkin deals with in this chapter. Yet another way that Hercules might turn out to be a kind of fraud. What if we're moral skeptics and don't believe that there are principles of morality which will provide right answers to disputed questions? And so if we have several different possible interpretations that fit, no morality, according to our skeptical attitude, is going to winnow out the wrong answers from the right ones, or we'll even go so far as to identify the best possible answer. I'll leave you with two notions of skepticism that Dworkin highlights, and here are descriptions from another work of his called Justice for Hedgehogs, where he distinguishes internal skepticism from external skepticism. And I'll leave it for our discussion to think about the ways that he responds to these critiques. Here's what he says about internal skepticism. Internal skepticism remains within the realm of value. It doesn't deny the possibility that value judgments can be true. On the contrary, it appeals to the truth of some basic value judgments to discredit other, typically widely believed, value judgments. Many of us are internally skeptical about conventional sexual morality. We appeal to a general, if rough, theory about what can make an act morally wrong and we conclude that freely chosen sexual acts of adults are not among the acts that can be morally wrong. Since we therefore deny the truth of a whole group of widely believed moral convictions, that any sexual act involving people of the same sex or unmarried people's wrong, for instance, our claim is internally skeptical. Okay, so that's internal skepticism, the idea that we will participate in making moral value judgments, but we might disagree with conventional morality from an internal perspective. All right, let's move to external skepticism. Here's what he says. External skepticism has an entirely different provenance and ambition. It purports to stand outside the entire realm of value judgment and from that external perspective, judge that value judgments are all false or that they are not even assertions that can be true or false, but rather constitute some entirely different form of speech act, expressions or projections of emotion, for instance. External skepticism, that is, is Archimedean because it stands about morality and judges it from the outside. It doesn't appeal to any deep or general value judgments in its argument for its skeptical conclusions. Rather, it relies on general theories of metaphysics or epistemology or meaning. One prominent version of external skepticism insists, for example, that all value judgments are false because they assert the existence of entities or properties that are too strange to countenance as part of our universe. All right, I'll end there, but he's, of course, referring to the fact that one way to be skeptical about morality is to say that it's really no more than like emotion or feeling, or that some systems of morality rely on kind of the supernatural or something which isn't observable. Okay, so you're probably familiar with that kind of critique, even if not with the way that Dworkin puts it. How do you think Dworkin's theory responds to these skeptical attitudes? What does he say? 
Let's think about that in our discussion for next time.